Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Dr. Shane Oliver, who's the Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP. Now, we do waste a little bit of time at the beginning talking about Kylie Minogue, a subject that Shane is very passionate about. But then he shares some great advice on his predictions for the property market and how investors can see the trends and look at the data to get an insight into where property is moving. We also talk to him about the impacts of potential negative gearing changes and what he sees for the outlook for the Australian economy. It's a fantastic interview and Shane's very generous with his time. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Shane Oliver, thank you for joining us on Geared for Growth. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. For for someone that doesn't have Google or a television, can you let us know who you are and what you do? My my title is Chief Economist and Head of Investment Strategy at AMP Capital and AMP Capital is the investment um, of AMP. Um, I've been here for a long time now. You won't have many people being in the same place for as long as me, but I've been uh, at AMP in the broader group for uh, almost 35 years, starting way back in 1984. Um, but my focus for most of that career has actually been on the investment side. So it's about analysing the economy combining that with analysis of investment markets and working out what that means in terms of high-level investment strategy across uh, the major asset classes and then um, uh, being involved in the implementation of that across those major asset classes. So it's very much multi-asset focus, everything from um, unlisted commercial property to infrastructure to share markets, both in Australia and globally, uh, fixed income markets, cash, and so on, and and of course looking at currencies. Um, so fairly broad focus there, but a lot of the focus, of course, is because we're we're located in Australia. A lot of the focus is on the Australian economy and what is going on there, um, and whatever the whatever the key issues are in the Australian economy. But that's basically what I do. Um, my role. Um, at AMP Capital. A, that's a pretty impressive title and quite a broad job des- description, but it's clear from the media that you do that you actually seem like you still love it. And what sort of, uh, what sort of employee loyalty you've had since 1984, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit unusual these days, although there are a few people at AMP who have been here longer than me, believe it or not. In fact, I, I saw the list once and there was someone who started here in the 1960s wow. and still here. Um, so, but uh, yeah, it is uh, the exception rather than the norm. I think I think what happened in my case was that I found a job that I really loved, which combined economics with investing, um, but it wasn't just sitting at a desk. It, it involved going out and um, meeting our customers uh, and, and also talking to the media. So the variety was the thing that really inspired me. And I guess... I thought AMP more broadly had a noble purpose. I guess you could argue, following the Royal Commission in Australia, that uh, some at AMP might have forgotten that noble purpose, but the noble purpose was on the side of the building and still is, which says, a sure friend in uncertain times, or the Latin is amicus certus. And that, that inspired me, working for a company that had that noble purpose to um, help ensure that people had better financial futures um, and, I, and I think most people at AMP try and do the right thing, even though, as with all organisations, there's a the handful that, that sometimes don't, and that's been highlighted at the Royal Commission. But I think, you know, in a broader sense, that noble purpose and the original vision of AMP 
which dated back into the 1800s, was one that impressed me. So when you put that together with a job which um, I really love doing and AMP has given me lots of opportunities through my career, I, I think all of those things combined explain why I've been here for yeah, almost fantastic. 35 years. And to give us a bit of dirt um, on the young uh, Dr. Oliver, uh, what posters were on the bedroom wall given the, uh, the corner high-profile real estate locations? <laughs> uh, well, interestingly, I, I could still remember them um, and they're, they're pretty clear stuck in my mind. This is probably from my teens uh, and or late teens probably. Uh, there was George Harrison poster which came out of the All Things Must Pass 3D set, which, mind you, I didn't get till 1980, a long time after he put it out. But So he was on the wall. There was Debbie Harry. Debbie Harry from from uh, Blondie, um, and there was also a few Elvis posters because I was uh, a big Elvis fan and still still am. And in fact, I still listen to all of those. Maybe not Debbie Harry as much, but uh, certainly uh, George Harrison, Beatles, such as, and such Elvis. As your employer, you find something you like and you stick to it. I like that. <laughs> um, so, so how did <laughs> that's you right, that's get right. started in, in property and investing? And can you can you remember and run run us through your first investment? My first investment uh, in residential property was a five bedroom house um, in Sydney's start. Northern Beaches. So I grew up in Sydney's. Yeah, I, I grew up in Sydney's Northern Beaches, and I was a bit of a trendsetter. I stayed at home with my parents <laughs> for longer than most of my cohort did. Um, uh, even after I met a girlfriend, so well, she remained your girlfriend. We uh, decided that oh, we, she remained my girlfriend. Good. I got married to her, and we're still married. So it um, had the advantage when you do that of uh, being able to save for a property. And and mind you, the issue wasn't so much the price back then; the issue was the level of interest rates, which were at one point the standard level mortgage rate was seventeen percent, and there wasn't much bargaining around that. You paid seventeen percent, um, but we decided in the early 90s that we should get ourselves into the property market. There was a bit of a slowdown back then. Prices came off a little bit, not a lot. So we bought a house on Bilgola Plateau, which uh, had pit water views, not expansive, but pretty good pit water views. It had five bedrooms. Reminded me a bit of the Brady Bunch house because it was on several levels, split across several levels. Um, and it cost 299000 and we couldn't afford it. I was still staying at home. She was staying at home with her parents. But we rented it out and got $300 a week um, at that point in time. So that was uh, my first property exposure. I guess around about that time, I, I'd always had a familiarity with property because AMP, of course, has a very large commercial property exposure and in the late 1980s, I started doing a lot of research around commercial property, how to value it from an economic point of view as opposed to the way valuers would necessarily look at it yep. um, and what impact interest rates have and supply and demand. And, of course, then that ushered in the commercial property collapse, office property collapse of the early 1990s. So I sort of had a familiarity with bricks and mortar investments, although that form of investment, commercial property, office, retail, industrial was on a much bigger scale and anything I could do personally. Um, but anyway, that gave me the foothold. Um, we rented that property for several years and then we sold it and moved on. 
Awesome. And I guess, yeah, that must must be pretty exciting being able to, to play with investment funds that are a bit more than, you know, maybe you and a couple of mates could string together. Um, and, and certainly I want to delve much more into the property stuff, but I just wanted to ask you uh, a bit of a, a bit of a niche question. You know, I'm, I'm wary with people like yourself. You're in the media all the time. You probably get asked the same question all the, all the time. Um, this one might this one might come out of left field. Um, one thing one, one thing I did in my research is I looked at your your Twitter profile and and such as other um, media commentators, you follow very few, but you uh, have a lot of followers. And you know I saw all the all the usual suspects, all the Economist, uh, you know the Louis Christophers, the the Pete Wargens, who's a mate of mine. And then we get to Katy Perry and Kylie Minogue. I just want to ask for the record, how much of an influence do these two artists have on your decisions for the directions of AMP investments? Both have quite a big impact. Um, <laughs> this isn't live, otherwise I'd be yeah, looking but, at the share price, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm just uh, thinking, but both have quite a big impact. I think when you're investing, it's very important to turn down the noise to be successful as an investor. Otherwise, you run the risk of getting distracted and... Um, chopping and changing your investments. And the same could apply to residential as well. Um, you need to have, I, I think, some sort of long-term focus and anchor. Um, but, of course, the noise around investing, particularly share market investing, can become intense. So you've got to find a way to turn down the noise, and music does that for me. I've long been heavily into music, whether it was you know, the Beatles when I was growing up or Paul McCartney, actually, the Beatles sort of split up by the time I started to understand music. Yeah. Um, and then you sort of move on to others around that period and um, and then as the years wore on, I, I sort of became a fan of Kylie. In fact, my sister's told me the day she's managed to get ticket, tickets to Kylie's um, upcoming concert round uh, next year, which is quite uh, quite good news. So I'm quite pleased at that. Are you expecting? Um, in fact, I've seen every Kyle. Are you in? in ex- are you expecting to bump into any other uh, chief economist there, or you think this is just a little bit more of a niche <laughs> Shane Oliver interest? I, I think this is more of a niche Shane Oliver interest, <laughs> and to some degree, it reflected a contrarian aspect in me. I, I think one of the keys to successful investing is to try and avoid doing what the crowd does. And back in the late 1980s, Kylie Minogue was criticised as being the singing budgie. Mm. Um, And a lot of people said she didn't have talent and all that sort of stuff. I I thought she did, and the fact that that people were saying she's the singing budgie made me convince me that I should be a fan. Um, So I started buying her CDs, and then only in the 2000s did I start start to go and see her concert, starting with the concert uh, which followed the album called Light Years, which had spinning around on it. Um, and I've gone to every concert ever since. Um, but it's, it's not just Kylie. You know, someone comes along with good pop songs and a good tune that can get stuck in my head, then I'll, I'll, I'll get into it, whether it's Taylor Swift or Katy Perry. Um, I, 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 I kind of think Kayla, uh, Katy lost it a little bit on Witness. It wasn't as good as her previous albums, whereas... Reputation, which is um, Taylor Swift's latest album, is is an excellent wow. album. But all, all artists have ups and downs. Um, so if anyone sends me something which has a good tune to it, I'll probably try and get into it. These days it's a lot easier because of Spotify and streaming yeah, yeah. and all those sorts of things to get into music. But if I've become a full-on fan, then I'll probably try and get the CD um, because then you can you – know, I think when you get a CD or – 
preceding that um, vinyl. You you, uh, you look at it more closely, you see who wrote the songs, you, you see what the lyrics are. Yeah, you get the full um, uh, story behind the album. Right? Yeah, you get the full experience, whereas if you're just streaming it, you don't really have much commitment to it. Well, that... Um, that- and I think that's quite important. For example, I know that Kylie writes a lot of her own songs with other people and as do many of those other artists I've mentioned. Um, but that kind of impresses me, knowing that sort of stuff, rather than these just being songs that put, picked off the shelf and paid some money for <laughs> to, to be able to record them. I love it. I'm just, I'm just picturing you sort of headbanging away at the AMP Christmas party. That sounds like the hottest <laughs> ticket of the year. I've got to get my way in there somehow. Um, yeah, I, I must admit, I, I, I really see uh, colleagues at these events, although there was one a few years ago. I was I also a fan of the Beach Boys, and Brian Wilson over many years has come out and done concerts, including at the Opera House, and uh, there was a guy there who was in investor relations at AMP, and he contacted me to say that he was also a big Beach Boys fan. And also at that event, a journalist saw me dancing the California Girls, <laughs> and so they did a caricature of me at the time, and then he kept wheeling out a version of the caricature over the years. But anyway, um, that was just, just by the by. But most of the time, I don't see a lot of people I know at these events. Uh, uh- as you'd probably expect. Yeah, I would expect. Um, obviously, that's a little bit of a silly question, but it sort of leads into into the next one. I am quite interested in, in knowing what it's like being a, a very public media uh, commentator, especially when we're talking about heated things like property markets where everyone sort of stands to gain or lose something. I mean, um, you, you've certainly made some predictions over the years that have probably rubbed people the wrong way. What, what sort of hate mail volumes are we talking in peak periods for the Oliver Mailbox? Yeah, they've sort of gone up a little bit because once you're on Twitter, you <laughs> there's a direct link there. You're isn't more it? accessible yeah. in a way. There's a direct link, and so um, I, I haven't got a lot of hate mail over the years. Uh, to be honest with you, some of it um, just comes in via the mail. It's often uh, someone who's a bit older will will handwrite a note to me and say that they were in a fund and it didn't do too well, or I was I, they said that they heard me on the radio and I said that over the last few years superannuation funds have had good returns. In fact, this happened to me earlier this year when share markets started to get a bit shaky in February. I did an interview on the ABC, uh, which I said, well, yes, we're seeing a bit of volatility now, but bear in mind that for the last few years, we've had pretty good returns out of balanced growth superannuation funds, and the median return has been around eight and a half, nine percent, or something like that. Someone immediately uh, wrote a letter to me and said, "Well, they haven't got that return." Now, of course, the complication is that they're in a different right. fund, <laughs> <laughs> and I think they're in an AMP fund, but they're in a it looks like it was a low growth fund, so it wouldn't have had particularly high returns because it was conservatively invested. So you end up with more cash and government bonds as opposed to share markets. Um, so you get a bit of that. On, on Twitter, I've, I have noticed the volume has gone up. Um, it was probably most intense when the housing boom was on and uh, particularly in the initial years, well, the housing boom has come and gone since about uh, 1995 to some degree. That's when I Say ninety four, I sold the house on Bilgola Plateau and then bought another one, uh, which I'm still living in, or we're still living in, my wife and I, and the kids. But that um, sort of marked the low point, and, and from that point on, about ninety five, ninety six, property prices literally took off as people regarded 
low interest rates is here to stay. Whereas prior to that, they didn't really have a lot of faith in that view. And then we had a boom going into the early part of last decade. Um, and then it came off a bit, then it took off again, then we've had various swings up and down ever since, but mostly up. Um, but as we started to strengthen through that initial period after the 2011 interest rate cuts, you know, we went through 2012, prices, price momentum bottomed out, prices started to rise. Um, a lot of questions then about around whether we're in a bubble or not, and I would usually always answer them by saying, yes, the property market's overvalued, but I don't think it's bubbly. And I don't think around 2012, 2013, 2014, initially, I don't think it was yep. bubbly. It only got turned into a bubble a little bit later on. Initially, it was a, a justifiable response to lower interest rates. But after a while, it took on a life of its own. Um, and then I got a lot of people sort of coming in and saying, well, how can you say it's not a bubble? You know, of course it's a bubble. Um and then I guess the way I look at it was that, well, it, did, it then did become a bubble, um, particularly around 2015, 16, 17, you know, where it was almost sustaining itself. You know, people were getting in uh, on the basis of extrapolating past price gains, and that, that I think, is a key element of a bubble. You, you want To have a bubble, you've got to be overvalued, and where price gains are extrapolated into the future and the price gains are feeding on themselves... Um, but more recently, uh, yeah, when we got into last year, I, I started to realise this has gone too far. Um, interest rate cuts have gone about as far as they could in the short term, um, and we were starting to see a tightening in credit conditions. And um, I started to call it back down the other way. You know, we're going to have some falls here. Now, some people have come along and said, oh, you're trying to talk it down. Um, but I, I haven't received a lot of uh, adverse commentary on that. Um, in fact, the bulk of the, co- the the comments you get on Twitter is that I'm, yeah, that my top to bottom prediction of a twenty percent decline in Sydney and Melbourne is too cautious. It's probably going to right. be forty <laughs> percent. That seems to be where a lot of people. I was going to ask you about from. if you Google Shane Oliver and news, then you're going to see you know house prices to fall twenty percent in Sydney and Melbourne. Says top economist, where where you you were sort of saying that as the market was still probably posting um, posting gains. Do you do you do you, do you still sort of stand by that and is that what you're sort of thinking from from peak to trough in, in Sydney and Melbourne? Yeah, that's um, – initially I was saying a decline of 5 to 10%, but then as it became apparent that there was a lot yep. of problems, particularly the increase in supply combined with tightening credit conditions and then the Royal Commission has, has arguably reinforced that all at a time when foreign buying has declined and there's a potential for change of government, which will mean – if it occurs, uh, less favourable negative uh, negative gearing arrangements and capital gains tax discount. So, yes, I do stick to the uh, the twenty percent fall. Um, that's a top to bottom prediction. So Sydney has already fallen about eight percent. So you could argue, well, we've got another twelve percent to go. Melbourne's fallen about five percent, so it's got another fifteen percent to go. The problem is that it's not going to be precisely twenty percent. It could be a little bit yeah. more. It could be a little bit less. Um, and point forecasts are notoriously unreliable. And people who claim that they saw with absolute foresight that this was coming. Um, I mean, one, some of them did, yeah, but the problem is that for a lot, yes. they've got the timing wrong. Um, and that, I think, is always problematic because if you're back in 2008, say, and you say there's an almighty property crash coming and then 
for the next uh, five or six years, you know, prices predominantly go up, um, then even if you do get a property crash, you probably just give back some of those gains. Even if prices come off 20% here uh, from their high point last year, they will only go back to where they were in yeah. the first half of 2015 in, in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, so it's, yeah, so if you'd sort of stayed out of the market for the prior 10 years, then, um, yeah, yeah, waiting to get in, then you, you still might have actually been better off getting in exactly. <laughs> all those years ago. And, and I think housing is a difficult one as well because a lot of the buyers you know, are owner-occupiers. You know, at the moment, it's more than 50%. At one stage, it was down to close to 50%. But at the moment, we're more than that. And owner-occupiers have different uh, motivation. Their motivation is to get shelter and, the, and to get the services that a house provides. Um, so they're not necessarily as focused on on the uh, the capital growth aspect of it all. Um, and, and I think as a general perspective, you know, the trend ultimately will remain up in Australian housing. That's been the story since, well, I've got the data back to 1926. That's been the story ever since then. Occasionally you have these setbacks. The worst one was probably uh, from the late 1920s into about 1942. I think the low in 1942 was explained by the midget subs in Sydney, uh, yeah, causing a bit of a scare, so all the people in the eastern suburbs yeah. sold up and moved to Barrel. That sort of gave us the <laughs> gave us the World War Two slump, if you like. But if you're taking a long term view, which is what most homeowners hopefully do, then owner occupiers, then you know it it will prove to be a, a good um, a good way to allocate your money. But uh, if alternatively you're worried about the very short term, your next couple of years, and you're in no hurry, then you're probably better off waiting a little bit. But, yeah, bottom line is I'm sticking to the 20% view, uh, top full, top to bottom, Sydney and Melbourne. Other cities haven't really had the boom that Sydney and Melbourne had. Um, mind you, Darwin and Perth yep. did, but they've already had a bust. Perth prices are off almost 15% from their highs. They're back to where they were prior to 2007. A similar story in Darwin. In fact, Darwin's off about 20-odd percent, 25% or something like that. Um, so they've already had a bust. But So the bottom line is that the rest of Australia is, is going to correct a lot less, if at all. And so top to bottom falls in Australia overall are likely to average around 10%. But City in Melbourne. I'm interested uh, in these prediction the figures. I, I've spoken to one uh, finance expert who basically conceded, you know, putting putting a percentage on on growth or decline numbers is is a bit sort of crystal ball. It, it's a lot easier to see the the factors building behind the scenes pointing to the direction. Is is that something that you're sort of seeing with with the media as they're wanting to pin you down to a specific a specific percentage? And do, do you think we can get that accurate and specific to say, you know, eight percent? in this particular year in this city? No, it's impossible. It's, it's literally impossible. And, I, and over the years, I have written notes on this, that, that forecasting is incredibly difficult. You're better off focusing on the broad direction and the, and, you know, the, the, the supply and demand factors impacting it. Um, but what tends to happen is that to communicate a view the way our minds work is that you have to put a number down. Um, otherwise... People uh, don't take it seriously, um, and so that's you know, why I tend to communicate a view. Um, but I, I know from history that <laughs> they won't they won't be right. You know, you'll be too conservative, or um, uh, it, it won't be as bad. But 
uh, as a central, as a guide to my central view, it sort of gives you a rough idea. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would treat these numbers with caution. And when you dwell down into individual suburbs or price predictions for individual houses, I'd be really sceptical of those. Economists have a lot of trouble trying to get uh, house prices right. Um, I, I, I guess one way of looking at the 20% number is that um, if you look at some of my models that value properties, and they're not the same as you know, traditional real estate people would use, but they use a whole bunch of things, um, that the minimum overvaluation is about 20%. So if you come down about 20% in Sydney and Melbourne, you sort of, on some of my models, you're getting back to around fair value. Yep. And then if you allow for the fact that wages are growing at 2% per annum, uh, which isn't a lot, but two <laughs> percent is still two percent. Then that's in in wage adjusted terms. That's that's a twenty six percent decline. So, so if you're looking at a fall spread over three years, and wage inflation and general price inflation in the economy is running around two percent, then in real terms or wage adjusted terms, you're coming off about twenty five, twenty six percent, which is quite a decent uh, pullback. Um, but at the end of the day, I'd be the first to concede that. You've got to be um, uh, cautious in assuming that there's any precision to this. There is a lot of uh, guesstimation involved. Yeah. Um, it, and I, I'd probably prefer to talk about it rather than stick too much to the precise level. But what I would say is that this fall is going to be greater than the ones we saw last decade because uh, the, the ones we saw in, in recent times, actually not the last decade, but starting in Sydney, say, in 2004, 2005, 2008, and 2000 and, uh, around 2011-12, um, each of those were rescued by various things, such as uh, lack of supply or lower interest rates or a boom in the economy on the back of you know, mining boom and ongoing tax cuts every year, which kept things going along nicely. So there was, there was a bunch of things which meant that those falls back then were fairly modest, uh, whereas this time around you've got more supply coming on, you've got uh, much tighter credit conditions, hard to see the Reserve Bank cutting interest rates anytime soon, and foreign buying um, seems to have receded. So therefore, I think it'll be worse than what we've seen in recent times. Yep. But by the same token, to get a crash, you know, a US-style GFC-style crash in property prices or what happened in Ireland or Spain or what have you through the GFC, to get those sorts of things, you either need to see much higher interest rates or much higher unemployment causing people to default yes. in mass and then you get forced selling. And I, and I don't see that on a grand scale either. So, therefore, um, I, I think yeah, it's going to be a severe decline, um, but it's probably not going to be a crash and it's probably not going to be the soft landing that we saw um, at various points over the last decade or so. Ignoring those sort of specific numbers, which we'll, we'll obviously just take as a bit of a talking point, I'm interested in if you wouldn't mind teaching us about housing markets. So for for property investors, um, there's, there's certain economic data that obviously that you, you know, you'll see you quote in Twitter like auction clearance rates. What, what does the average punter need to follow to be able to see the direction the market's heading in? Or should we be looking at days on market? market or housing starts for supply or what are some of the key things we should be looking at? Auction clearance rates is a good place to start and I like them because they come out once a week so they're pretty timely um, and there's two things to look at there, the, the, the volume of sales um, and the clearance rate and obviously if you know those two, you know the uh, the volume of listings as well. Um, 
so normally when you're I mean, it's not, it's not a perfect relationship, but sometimes the high the, the highs we had in the recent boom were above those seen previously, you know, when you were pushing into the eight, mid-80s. Um, but roughly speaking, you know, if you're sort of pushing above 70% into 80%, then it, things are pretty strong. Um, obviously, you know, demand is, is keeping up with supply. Um, but then if you're pushing like lately into the low 40s or possibly into the 30s, as some recent uh, Saturdays have seen, then things are fairly weak. Um, and then when you combine that with the fact that you know, sales are running down 50% from a year ago in both Sydney and Melbourne, um, it, it tells you that things things have softened down quite a bit. So the clearance rates are one to watch. Um, problem is that it's hard to get good graphical representation of that. I mean, you can go to the websites on domain that has them, but they often just have the number. They don't put it in context. And I think one of the important things about investing is to try and put things in context. You know, if, if you tell me that uh, the share market lost $50 billion today, um, that sounds like a really big number. But then I think, well, you know, is the share market how big is it in the first place? Is $50 billion really a lot or, or not? And I, I really want to know the percentage number because that puts it in context. I mean, I, I get really annoyed when they tell me in the radio in the morning that the Dow fell 200 points. And I'm thinking, well, you know, is that a lot or not? I can never remember yeah. whether that's a lot. <laughs> it sounds like a big number when they say 500. Well, yeah, that must be shocking. Um, but you really want to know the percentage number because that puts it in context. Um, but one of the things you also need is is to see these things through time. You know, we have we've seen these sorts of falls before. What does the cycle look like in auction clearance rates or the share market or whatever it is? So, if you can get your hand on a chart of the clearance rates, that's quite useful. And and that's why I um, tweet it every Saturday night when I get it, um, get that that data. Um, now, that, those other sorts of numbers are also useful. Um, you know, the number of days that it's spent on the market, which is a guide to how long it's taking to sell, um, that's that's quite useful um, information as well. The, the, these are sort of numbers that come out from the real estate world. Um, then there's other numbers which come out from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, like housing finance. Yep. Uh, the most recent numbers came out Friday, a week or so ago, and they uh, they showed a continuing decline. So that the, the the value of commitments made by banks to lend to Australian home buyers has been falling roughly at a rate of around what two percent a month for some time now, and it's down uh, significantly from where it was a year ago, particularly to investors. So investor demand or supply of money to investors has has uh, has well and truly fallen, and recently that weakness seems to be spreading to owner occupiers as well. Um, now, you can get that data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, but to me, they're the main ones to keep an eye on. Then, then there are some other longer-term charts I like to look at. I like to look at the uh, population growth in an area or you just take the whole of Australia and compare that to the number of houses coming onto yep. the market. Um, and this was the big problem in Australia over many years that uh, starting about 2006, population growth jumped up from averaging around, say, 215,000 people per annum. Uh, population growth in the middle of last decade jumped up to around 370,000 people per annum. 
and that of course is natural population growth plus yeah. immigration and the, the, if you've tracked that against the supply of houses there wasn't much of a a pickup in the supply of houses until recently when we've had the unit building boom. Watch out for the cranes, um, you keep telling that, us. Yeah, well, that's the other one, which brings me to the crane index. So for a long time, uh, we didn't match uh, supply to demand. Uh, housing became incredibly unaffordable. Then finally, starting about three or four years ago, the cranes went up in record numbers right now around Australia. Uh, we've got something like 525 cranes in the sky building residential property that compares to the US, which has about 300 cranes in the sky building all sorts of property, residential and non-residential. And likewise, Canada has 125 cranes in the sky building all sorts of property. So North America, defined as the US and Canada, have about 425 cranes in the sky uh, we have 525 just doing residential. So there's a lot of supply coming on stream. So watching that crane count is worth keeping an eye on. And you can get that. Um, uh, there's, there's a crane index, uh, and I've forgotten their names now. It's on the bottom of my uh, <laughs> the charts I put out on that one. But uh, there's a website there which does track that, that crane count, um, which I also find quite useful. I didn't realise this was around until recently. Um, but that's another useful one to watch. Then, then I, I think it's also worth um, looking at the yield. If you're an investor in property, looking at the yield you can get um, in Sydney and Melbourne, it's quite low at present. Uh, you know, net terms, you're pushing down around 2% or depending on whether you've got a house or a unit. Um, and by by net, I mean after land tax yep. and various costs associated with maintaining a property. So that's a relatively low rental yield. But just if you go across to other parts of Australia, uh, in regional Australia, you can get a rental yield way, way above that, you know, pushing up to around 5% in some areas. So I, th I think if you're looking into an area, um, you know, what would be of interest to me or what I would be looking for is – a lack of cranes yeah. <laughs> at the current time. That means a lack of supply coming on, which would be a good thing, good population growth um, and relatively um, high rental yields, um, all at a, hopefully with a relatively low vacancy rate uh, in terms of uh, rental property vacancy. So that would be the sort of things I'd be looking at. But I, I must admit for ordinary Australians, it's often hard to find this stuff. But if you look around on the internet, Google this sort of stuff, it, it pops up and then you, you follow certain commentators and, and can get that information from them, often via tweets. Awesome. And Oliver's Insights, we'll check that out on the AMP website as well. We'll post a link to that. You, you mentioned negative gearing before. Um, obviously, negative Gearing is, 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 is going to have a negative impact on house prices. The commentators are saying rents are likely to go up. What, what are the broader implications for the economy, do you think? And was this a policy designed to sort of dampen a rising property market that has now sort of been hit on the head by APRA and the Royal Commission and all the tighter lending standards and just naturally, um, you know, less demand? I think that's right. It was, it was a policy that Labor came up with. Uh, prior to the 2016 election, uh, and it was designed to tilt the playing field a little bit more back in favour of first-home buyers and away from investors. And there was a community feeling at the time that the tax system was was 
stored, you know, providing a, more of a benefit to investors. Um, my personal view on it was that, you know, the real driver of unaffordable housing was the lack of supply relative to the surge in population growth, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, and then that was the main factor um, that was holding prices up at such high levels. Um, normally, when demand picks up, uh, then uh, a supply response would eventually be forthcoming and then prices would uh, come back down. Uh, but that hadn't happened in Australia um, because there was various constraints about the supply of new property. Now, you can make an argument, I think, that the capital gains tax discount may be distorting things a little bit. Um, my preference would be to return to uh, taxing capital gains like Paul Keating originally uh, uh arranged it, which is that you would be taxed on your real capital gain. Uh, the change occurred sometime during the Howard years on the argument that, um, you know, it, it, it was too complicated, that it was a disincentive to private equity investment, um, and therefore we, a simpler approach would be to have this capital gains tax discount. So if you held an asset for more than 12 months, then you would be taxed at half your marginal tax rate on your capital gain. But that turns out to be overly generous in a world of very low inflation. Um, and you could argue that's the biggest single factor, um, perhaps distorting investors' decisions. So I would argue, yeah, there is some case to look at the capital gains tax discount. But negative gearing, I think, is just a feature of our tax system, which enables you to deduct the costs of investing against your income, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, but in any case, you know, maybe there was an argument that it was being abused, you know, people with lots of properties being negatively geared or with multiple loans. Um, but I, I, I do worry that if we restrict negative gearing just to new properties, then it means a lot of investor money trying to go into one part of the market alone, potentially up front. That's a simplistic way of looking at it, though. But when you drill beneath, you sort of then start to wonder, well, why would investors even buy new property? Because... Uh, by the time it comes to sell that property, because all investors have an endpoint where they eventually want to offload it, otherwise, you know, why would you undertake the investment? Um, but so, if you want to sell it in five or ten years, uh, you, you then sort of think think it all through. Well, if uh, the capital gains tax discount has changed and negative gearing means investors can only buy new property, by the time I come to sell my once new property, it's now now an old property, investors won't be able to buy it anyway, and so therefore the demand will be less than it once was. And so I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that the policy will actually bring forward new construction, it's simply because investors will say, yeah, fair, I can still get negative, fair enough, I can still get negative gearing on that new property, but when it comes time to sell it, um, investors won't be able to buy it. Yeah. Um, and so it may not stack up. And in the meantime, my capital gains tax bill would have will have gone up. So there's a lot of complications around this, and it's a classic example of often policies are quite well-meaning, but they can result in unintended consequences, which may explain why negative gearing was removed in the mid-'80s, only to be reintroduced a few years later once investor demand was shown to dry up and rents were going up. So anyway, there's a lot of complication <laughs> around all of this. Um, you can debate whether it's the right thing to do or not, but I, I do worry that it will simply accelerate 
the downwards momentum in prices. There has been various studies on this. Uh, one I saw recently showed prices in Sydney coming off 9% in response to the proposed tax changes, a little bit less in Melbourne. Um, but that's largely because of that issue that investors will say, well, I, I'm not going to get in there, even new property, because um, I, by the time it comes to sell it, it'll no longer be new and investors can't buy it. Yeah. So, a um, bit of a drag coming through from there. And, and at, at a very high level, um, to the extent the investors have ranged from being 30 to 50% of the market, uh, it's suddenly going to be a lot less attractive for investors getting into the market. So it stands to reason there'll be less investment activity in the market, which means a key source of demand will be weaker than it once was. So I'm not, I, I kind of think that it's going to become unnecessary to do these changes because comprehensive credit reporting, which kicks in next year, will limit borrowers getting multiple loans and negatively gearing multiple properties yeah. anyway. So you could argue that the imperative or the the pressure to do something on the tax system that was there in 2016 won't be as great once comprehensive credit reporting and the tougher credit and lending standards kick in as we go through next year, or they're already kicking in now, but as, that, as it really ramps up going to next year. And I guess year. the really unintended consequence that's most negative is less investor demand means that Australia now has a, a housing problem um, for, for rental and obviously the government's out of the, the public housing business fairly well entirely now these days, right? That's right. The government doesn't do a lot in the housing market. There's been little bits and pieces here and there for very low-cost housing, but not a lot compared to the old days when housing commission homes were more common. Um, and we also lack the institutional um, in the investor market. If, if you go to places like Germany, uh, the people who own the rental property tend to be companies and they will own these properties for decades and decades and the same family will, have, will live in the same rental property for 70 or 80 years or something, <laughs> just goes on forever. Uh, whereas in Australia, of course, we've got a very different structure to the market. The bulk of the property ownership is directly held 60-odd, 65% or two-thirds held roughly by owner-occupiers. The investors hold a chunk of the market, but they tend to be part-time yeah. if they're just doing it as a hobby. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But it's it's a very different market institutionally to the one that you have in parts of Europe. So I, I kind of think we've got to be careful, you know, when we move here. You know, there is the risk of unintended consequences, and uh, and I, I I would think that if I know from tomorrow that Labor has won and this change is about to be introduced, then I would probably get a bit more nervous again as to what it will mean to for property prices in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, going forward, even though you could argue, well, it's starting to get factored in now. But I think the main factor driving the weakness we've seen lately has been the credit tightness and uh, against the backdrop of, yeah. of rising Where supply. Where does Australia stand when it comes to the, the health of the economy at the moment? How well would we be able to, to weather any storm? Are we are we over-leveraged? Are we, are we risking mortgage stress or negative equity? Are we a high proportion of renters over owner occupiers what's our what's our, our health chart looking like at the moment well the, the risk has gone up there's no doubt about that simply because the level of household debt to income has gone up um i i, I don't buy into the argument that there's been a lot of bad lending i mean obviously the royal commission handed or say in the banking system but there's a lot of good behavior that goes on every day and most of the behavior is good 
not bad um, on the part of both the lenders and the borrowers. Um, and that's all evident in the fact that default rates are very low, whereas default and delinquency rates are very low. In contrast to the US, where money was lent to people who never had a job, no income, no asset, ninja loans, no income, no job, no asset um, type loans. And then, uh, you know, as soon as interest rates rose, they couldn't refinance um, and they had to jump to much higher levels of payment. And then, of course, they defaulted because they didn't have a job in the first place. Um, we, we haven't had that in Australia um, I, I think the Australian market institution is a lot stronger than that in the US, and nor and we also have full recourse loans. So, if you borrowed a million dollars and the value of your house falls below the borrowing, you can't hand the keys back. Whereas in America, people could hand the keys back. That was the end of their liability, not in all states, but in several key states. And of course, then once the bank gets uh, the house back, they then have to put it on the market, which then uh, reinforced the downwards pressure on prices. And of course, it kept going for quite a long way down. So a lot of those things simply aren't present in our market. The main risks are simply that we do have relatively high a relatively high level of household debt to income, so there's a lot of a lot of debt out there. Um, we do have some borrowers who've got interest-only loans, and they're being forced to switch to principal and interest. Um, that will create some stress, but I think the real issue would, and, and obviously as prices come down, then that will result in a negative wealth effect, which will be a dampener on consumer spending. Um, which is why I'm a little bit less little less optimistic than the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank says, well, growth over the next uh, year will will be 3.5% for, for the remainder of this year, slowing to about 3.25% for next year. Um, and then combined, that will help push the unemployment rate down quite a bit further. I, I tend to think that the dampening impact of falling house prices on wealth will constrain consumer spending relative to what the Reserve Bank's talking about, and that will see growth constrained in the 25 to 3% range for the Australian economy, which is not a disaster, um, but it's still weaker than the Reserve is Reserve Bank is talking about. I, I, the reason I don't see a disaster, on the other hand, the other way of looking at it is that to get a really hard decline in house prices that really causes huge problems for the banks, you'd need to have much higher interest rates, which seems unlikely. I know a lot of people say, well, the Fed's raising rates, surely that's going to flow through. Well, it only flows through to a little degree. The Fed's already yeah. raised interest rates 200 basis points. And all that's flowed through to our market is just a, a few basis points. You know, the most recent move on the bank's part was about 10 to 15 basis points. So um, the reality is that the the main driver of interest rates that people pay in Australia is what the Reserve Bank does on the cash rate. Um, so I, I wouldn't be too worried about the Fed. It's, it's a factor in there, but it's not the main factor. It's a re relatively small factor. So, so I don't see rising interest rates causing a, a huge default cycle. The other risk, of course, would be if unemployment went through the roof, then that would, again, you know, there might be a bit of unemployment from here as the construction housing construction cycle slows down, but it's hard to see it pushing up to levels that would cause a major problem for the economy. So my, my feeling is that we probably come through all of this okay. Prices do come down 20% in Sydney and Melbourne. It feels kind of bad. Um, that acts as a constraint on consumer spending. Growth remains constrained. You know, 
not altogether different to what it's been for the last few years in Australia. Yeah. Um, but we just sort of motor along. And there are other things helping hold the economy up. We've got the infrastructure spending boom. We've got uh, drag from mining investment falling. That's now come to an end. Non-mining investment looks to be picking up. Export volume growth looks good. So it's just the story of Australia for the last 27 years now. We've always seen to have something keeps us going even though other parts are uh, not doing so well we always find a way out <laughs> like the and that's, like the horseman you are piling in the streets of sydney we found the motor <laughs> the motor car we'll, we'll find something um we will find something and that's the lucky country that's exactly what exactly. It, well, partly what it refers to that we will we will uh find a way um it, Shane, I know you've got uh, another gig lined up uh, straight away, so I just wanted to to wrap this up if I can. If if there's if there's one piece of advice you would give your property investors at the moment, what would that be? There's lots of things you could say. Yeah, always allow that interest rates go up as well as down. House prices don't always go up. Um, but but I reckon the key piece of advice in this environment, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne and elsewhere where it's a bit slower, is to take your time. You know, now's the time to get out there and take your time, make sure you get an investment that you really want. Um, make sure also um, that it's an investment providing decent income flow. Uh, investors often in Australia haven't had to worry about the income flow, i.e. the rents you get, <laughs> um, because... The capital growth has provided the bulk of the return, but I think we're sort of coming into an environment where the capital growth will be more constrained in Sydney. It might be going negative, so Sydney and Melbourne, so you, you, you are paid to focus on the income yield as well as your longer-term capital potential. But I, th I think that's the key advice. Take your time. There's no hurry at the present point in time. Uh, focus on getting a decent income and the key issues around that when you're looking at particular areas, look for areas where there's good population growth, not a lot of new supply and uh, good good rental yields. I think that's good, safe, solid stuff. I can't imagine any Twitter vitriol from, from that, Shane. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> it's been my pleasure, Mike.